Sometimes life brings us big problems. Big problems. Amen? And uh, they, they might come to us and we did nothing to cause them or we might have caused them. Uh, big problems, however they come, can be overwhelming. We can feel like there's no way out. And our culture tells us that we are the solution to our problems. Our willpower, our, our work, they're enough if you just try hard enough. And it's like the American motto has become a Katy Perry song. I went from zero to my own hero. Uh, people are getting tattoos that say, I'm the hero of this story. Instead of needing to be rescued by a savior, uh, we have been deceived into thinking that we are the savior. We hear this in songs, we see it on TV, we see it in the movies, we read it in books, it is all around us. But this is naive because though it is painful to admit there are big problems that are bigger than us and we can't solve them no matter how hard we try to solve them. What then? Well, the biggest problem that humanity faces is human depravity, or you could say moral corruption. Has education or medication or regulation or emancipation solved the corruption of the human heart? No. Is our culture even making progress, or does human depravity still seem like a pretty overwhelming problem to solve? We can't pull ourselves out of the depths of our own moral corruption. We need a hero, and we need a hero to come and to rescue us from our biggest problem. We are dead until God shows up and rescues us. Last time we established the overarching point of the entire sermon series, which is this. God is sovereign over everything, gracious and kind to pursue and save stubborn people, And God uses his sinful but redeemed people to reach the nations for his glory and their greatest joy in him. Chapter 1 shows how Jonah's sin and rebellion against God created big problems for him, but not only for him, also for others, namely the pagan mariners. Jonah didn't want to listen to God's word. He didn't want Nineveh to repent and receive God's kindness. So with hate, anger, and self-righteousness in his heart, he ran. He ran from the presence of the Lord and sought out a godless culture where he didn't have to hear God. He didn't have to listen to God. He didn't have to be around God's people. He he didn't have to be reminded of God's call upon his life. The mariners tossed Jonah overboard into the raging sea, which actually saved their lives. But Jonah sank into his watery grave. And we pick up with Jonah 1 Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, let's say that you don't know how this story ends, and perhaps you don't. You hear that sentence, and you're like, that's the end of Jonah. He just got swallowed by a big fish. When a fish swallows you, you're done. That's it. Jonah hit the water, plummeted toward the bottom of the sea, and the fish swallowed him. And so running from God was creating big problems for Jonah. Point number one, sin led Jonah away from God and down to death. Away from God and down to death. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, but he didn't like it. And so he tried to block out the word of the Lord. He ran, and as he ran, his life was spiraling downward. 
In chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa, then down into the ship and away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah 1.5 says Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down. In verse 12, Jonah told the mariners to hurl him into the sea. Everybody on board knew that hurling him in the sea was the end of Jonah. That would kill him. And verse 15, the mariners tossed him into the deep waters. And I found out that the average depth of the Mediterranean Sea today is 4,900 feet, almost a mile. Jonah was drowning in the dark abyss. In chapter 2, Jonah was safe inside the fish. He was safe, but he described what his experience was like before the fish. He was distressed in big-time trouble. Big-time trouble. Jonah's sin had led him into dread and suffering, and he was alone, and he was drowning. For Jonah, the sea was the belly of Sheol. The Hebrew word for belly is often translated womb, and Sheol is the underworld or the place of the dead. The imagery of Scripture is a descent into Sheol. Jonah was heading down, down, down into the womb of death. Verse 3, he was thrown into the depths, into the heart of the open seas. He went down. The flood or the violent current of the sea engulfed him. The waves crashed over him and huge swells thrashed above him. In verse 4, he said to God, I am driven away from your sight. Jonah felt that he had fallen out of the favor of God. He was alienated. He was far from God. He was cut off. He was dejected. Look at verses 5 and 6. The murderous waters closed in over him. He was way deep down. Seaweeds were strangling him at the roots of the mountains. And folks, if you're at the roots of the mountains, man, you're deep. You're way, way down there. Jonah prayed, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Imagine the gates of death closing in, closing on Jonah. His sin had led him into hopeless peril. In verse 7, he described his life as fainting away. Imagine the, the flame of an oil lamp being dimmed slowly and dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it's extinguished. This was Jonah's life. This was happening to him. Death was closing in on him. Like juice inside of a grape is death inside of sin. Romans 5.12 says... That death came into the world through sin. Jonah was dying because of his sin. Sin is a tempting fruit. But it's poisonous to the point of death. Sometimes sin tastes sweet. And that's why it's so extremely dangerous. Its flavor is addictive. We want more of it. Yet the aftertaste is often anxiety and terror and dread and fear and emptiness and loneliness. And its effect is death. Can't we see from our own experience what sin does to us? The farther we get from God, the farther we go down until we reach the ultimate depth of eternal death itself. Listen to how well James described this slippery slope down. James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted 
When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Jonah's desires had enticed him into sin. He was well into it, and it was bringing forth death for him. Would Jonah have been drowning in the Mediterranean Sea if he had obeyed God? His sin had created problems for him that he otherwise would not have experienced if he had obeyed God. Listen to what God said to Israel in Ezekiel 18, verses 30 and 32. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. This is to his people. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Jonah was dying. His iniquity was ruining him. Don't ever run from God lest your iniquity be your ruin. But God had other plans and not Jonah's ruin. Jonah's salvation. He would not die this day. Look again at Jonah 1, 17 and then verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Point number two, God graciously rescued Jonah from death. He rescued him. What hope at that point did Jonah have outside of God himself? He had no hope. Just think for a moment about what was actually happening here. Jonah was inside of a huge fish deep within the Mediterranean Sea. And he was being supernaturally kept alive by God and he was conscious that he should be dead, but he wasn't. I mean, this is a, a fantastic moment. He was conscious enough even to be worshiping God from the belly of the fish, from inside the fish. This is what makes God's grace so amazing. Amazing. God does the impossible. Now, some people read Jonah and they laugh. They laugh and they count it as fairy tale and they'll consider you as silly and stupid if you believe a story like this, that this is actually history and that this actually happened. The skeptics are many. Skeptics are many. But the skeptics sadly miss that behind the story of Jonah is a sovereign and gracious God who is the only answer to their biggest questions and their biggest problems, a God who rescues people from the inevitability of eternal death. God graciously intervened in Jonah's life, and Jonah lived. Sovereign grace is the only explanation for that, of the story that we're reading. You'll notice that God is sovereign over everything in this story, including Jonah's salvation. So this book is telling you something magnificent about God and beckoning you to trust God, to, to treasure God, to savor God, to cherish God, because he is sovereign over your life, every last detail of your life. From inside the fish, Jonah was thankful to be alive. 
why was he thanking God and not thanking his lucky stars? Because God was the only explanation of how he was still alive. I want you just to look at Jonah's prayer closely. Just kind of scan down over it. It'd be helpful to have your Bibles open to Jonah 2. He also prayed, if you look closely enough, before the fish swallowed him. He was praying from inside the fish because God had answered his prayer from outside of the fish. Listen, verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, verse 4, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah could pray that because God was rescuing him, keeping him alive. And now Jonah was turning to to look at God once again. Jonah prayed, verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God grabbed Jonah and brought him up from certain death. One lexicon said this, The biblical view of the underworld, or Sheol, is that it is a place far beneath the earth. This belief made it natural to use a verb for ascending as a way to describe coming back from the dead. So the pit probably refers to Sheol, the place of the dead. It was the Lord God that brought up Jonah's life from inevitable death in the sea. It was a type of resurrection. And that should excite you to hear that little, a type of resurrection. Right there, you should be going somewhere because Jonah is pointing us to something much better. Jonah's prayer had made it to God and God graciously responded. Jonah was right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God alone saves. He alone is sovereign. He alone is gracious. Jonah couldn't swim out of this. Jonah had to be saved out of this. You can't swim out of your sin. You're not going to make it. You, You can't thrash the water harder and somehow make progress. You can't freestyle yourself out of your biggest problems. There is nothing that you can do to rise from the depths of your depravity and from the pit. You will drown unless God comes to your rescue. He is your last hope. And brothers and sisters in Christ, God has rescued you. He has met you in your distress, met you in your panic, met you in your certain death, and He has brought you up because salvation belongs to the Lord And he wants to be glorified through your miraculous salvation. Jonah didn't contribute to his own rescue. He didn't grab the life preserver. No, no. The life preserver grabbed him. You have done nothing to contribute to your salvation. And this glorifies God because salvation belongs to the Lord alone. The ESV Gospel Transformation Bible is so helpful and encouraging at this point. I just want to read for you this, this one note. It, it grabbed me. Jonah cried out when all hope was lost. His life seemed over, yet such is often the way of the Lord with his children, that despairing moment when we throw our hands up in the air and say, my life is over. That moment is when God can really get to work 
All through the Bible, we see the truth that life comes not by avoiding death, but through death. Strength comes not despite weakness, but in weakness. Comfort comes not by eliminating all affliction, but through affliction, end of quote. Doesn't that encourage you? God is awesome because he comes to us in our death, comes to us in our weakness, comes to us in our affliction when all hope is lost, and he rescues us. Salvation is his, and he chooses to save. Is God not kind? This truth will transform your life. But you see, maybe where you're at, maybe you're still drowning. Maybe you've been running from God for a long time and you're only beginning to, to realize that you're headed down, 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 down. And let me tell you, my friends, listen closely. God can bring you up. God can bring you up. God can breathe life into you. How do I know that? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. God can pull off the impossible rescue needed to save even you. This brush with death, it got Jonah praying. That's for sure. It woke him up. Point number three, God used a near-death experience to revive Jonah spiritually. He took him to the brink of death. Jonah had told the mariners on the ship, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But Jonah wasn't living that out. What on earth, Jonah? You're not showing that you fear God? Even when the pagan mariners were praying and pleading with Jonah to pray, Jonah didn't pray. He didn't pray. He just wasn't in a good place spiritually. He didn't repent. He didn't change course. Skim over chapter 2. You'll notice Jonah isn't really repenting. Where was his heart for Nineveh? Where was his commitment to go? But regardless of where Jonah was, God was working in Jonah. God was working and Jonah was beginning to wake up spiritually. When his crisis came, he cried out to God. He remembered the Lord. He prayed for mercy. He looked to God. Jonah turned to God again and God gave him cause to rejoice. He rejoiced that he would be in the presence of God again. He rejected idolatry and he received the hope of steadfast love of God. He was thankful and committed once again to offer sacrifices and to keep his vows. The fierceness of God terrified him and the grace of God revived him. And the emphasis of Jonah's prayer was on what God had done for him. What had Jonah done? All that Jonah contributed was sin. His sin. When you read this book of Jonah, you're going to be faced with a tension in it between what God had called Jonah to be and how Jonah actually was living and what Jonah actually was. Jonah was dreadfully imperfect. He didn't measure up. He failed to the point of death, but God still loved him. God still saved him. God still sent him and God still used him. When Jonah ran from God, God ran for Jonah. That is what our sovereign and gracious God does. He runs after sinners who are running from him. And because he is sovereign and because he is kind and because salvation belongs to him, he is able to track down and rescue the hardest of sinners 
and bring them up from the pit. That is what our sovereign and gracious God does. Jen Johnson, she's a musician in Bethel Music, sing a song that's titled Chasing You about how we are so in love with God that we chase him, that we run after his heart. And in one sense, okay, that's true. But there is a much greater truth to proclaim, and that is that God is chasing us. God is love, and he runs after our hearts. He does not chase in vain, for he rescues those he chases. And he does it to show the limitlessness of his power, grace, and sovereignty, even over the will of men. And thank God he is sovereign, or we would still be running from him. Aren't we like Jonah? We love God. We really do. Deep down, we want to serve him. But so often, we just disobey God. We run in the opposite direction of what we know he is calling us to do and where he's calling us to go. We run from our call to represent Christ well, but God is so kind. He keeps running after us. He keeps chasing us. He keeps going after our hearts, and he works in us to conform us to the image of his son. You see, God had Jonah the entire time. He just took him to the brink in order to wake him up. Sometimes God uses extreme measures to get our attention. One sin that I regularly battle in my life is ungodly fear. And I say ungodly because there is a good godly fear that we're supposed to fear God. Um, This is an ungodly fear. I fear certain trials will come for me in my life that I just, that would crush me. And that fear distracts me from God and it diminishes my peace, my joy, my rest in God. Uh, Sometimes when life is going really well, it's sweet, good things are happening, I'll fear in those moments that God is just about ready to take something precious from me. So let's call that as it is. That is unbelief. I'm distrusting God. Don't I believe that God is good? Don't I believe that my Father in heaven loves me and wants the best for me? Don't I believe that though God's fatherly discipline is severe, it is also good for me and ultimately for my greatest joy? Don't I believe that God is enough for me to the point that I can hold the things of this earth very loosely with open hands Don't I trust in the sovereignty of God? Don't I believe that God will work all things together for my good because I love him? You see, I am a weak and desperate man. Do you identify with this? Let me make a point that I think is going to help all of us. This point has the power to help you through your biggest problems and to help me too. This week, I read two terrifying sentences, and you're like, how is that going to help anybody? Well, they expose something that I greatly, I personally greatly fear this. And you might fear this too, but these two sentences contain a truth that will carry us through the deepest possible pain and tragedy and disaster and horrific circumstances and our fear. The two terrifying sentences were written by pastor and scholar Dr. Richard Phillips. Let me read them for you and then make a few comments. Sometimes 
The very best thing that can happen to us is the very thing we most dread. For the simple reason that it strips away our self-reliance, humbles our pride, and removes from us every other hope save that of God. Sometimes this is what it takes for us really to pray. Sometimes the very best thing that, we, that can happen to us is the very thing we most dread for the simple reason that it strips away our self-reliance, humbles our pride, and removes from us every other hope save that of God. Sometimes this is what it takes for us really to pray. God terrified Jonah. It was God's sea. It was God's wind. It was God's waves. It was God's billows. God threw Jonah into the water. God almost killed Jonah. Why? Please don't miss this. Self-reliance, pride, and hope in anything other than God are dangerous and damning sins. They lure us away from God and away from God-glorifying ministry. Since God is supremely good, please track this. Since God is supremely good and since our joy and pleasure increase, the closer we get to God, whenever God shatters our self-reliance, shatters our pride, shatters our hope and other things, he holds us closer to him amidst the heartache and pain of his discipline. He is loving us and giving us what we most need and desire, namely more intimacy with Him. No doubt, this is a tough, hard-hitting truth. But it is a really good truth. If God uses extreme measures to pull us closer to Him, is He not gracious and kind to do so? If God breaks us down in order to build us up, is he not good and loving and kind? And you see, this will break down for you. If you do not believe that God is the greatest good to be enjoyed and God takes away from you what you do believe to be your greatest good to be enjoyed, you will mistake God's loving discipline for cruelty. You will harden and you will move farther away from God instead of drawing closer to God. That's what will happen. But when you value God most, when he is what you desire most, and God takes away something precious from you, but he draws you closer in the middle of your loss, though you grieve, you know you are loved and that God will show up and strengthen you. In the loss, you know your love because the loss is proving that God walks with you through the pain. Isn't this a gracious gift? I don't know if this scares you, but it's true. God may need to take you to the brink of death to get through to you. And he might do it because he's a good God and he, and he cares for you. And when you see that he is the supreme good to be enjoyed, you will know the love of God in a much deeper way. Just as I say this, it scares me because God might do it. But then if God does it, will he not also be with me in it? Proving himself, I love you, Jonathan. He loves us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12, 6. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe the Bible? Oh, to be a beloved son or daughter of God who receives his loving discipline. Listen to Psalm 85, verses 6 and 7. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Here's what I want you to see in Jonah. Point number four, God is sovereign and gracious, and he alone saves and restores us through Jesus Christ. This is what gives us hope amid our biggest problems and sins. This little book of Jonah, it shows you that God is sovereign over everything, 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 everything. There is nothing that is outside of the sovereignty of God. In chapter 1, verse 4, it was God that hurled a great wind upon the sea. In chapter 1, verse 17, it was God that appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, verse 2, it was God that heard and answered Jonah's prayer. In chapter 2, verse 3, it was God who cast Jonah into the deep, into the heart of the seas. In chapter 2, verse 3, the waves and billows belong to God. In chapter 2, verse 6, it is not Jonah who swam up, it is the Lord God, who brought Jonah up, and in Jonah 2, verse 9, stands one of the most profound statements of the sovereignty of God in all of Scripture. It's short and sweet. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to the free will or the free choice or the work or the swimming of men. Salvation does not belong to men at all. It is simple. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And he gives it to whomever he chooses as a gift, unearned. Because if it's earned and you did anything to get it, it's certainly not a gift. It's a wage. So even if you believe some great faith and then God was able to save you, no, no, he gave you faith. He gave you grace. He gave you salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord. God is not obligated to give salvation to anyone. And yet he does. To many. To many. And we are so loved by the Father to have his salvation. Look at verse 10. This is an amazing verse. And the Lord spoke to the fish... And it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. I'm not sure I ever realized this before, but God taxied Jonah from where he was being tossed off of the ship to where he needed to be on dry land. He taxied him. He transported him through a fish. Incredible stuff. God appointed the fish to swallow him, to transport him, and then God told the fish where to spit Jonah out. That's amazing. Even the fish listen to our sovereign God. There. I mean, that's gross, but that's cool. All right. So, the sovereignty of God over all creation. Were you created? Then he is sovereign over you. He is sovereign over everything. From the belly of the fish... To dry land, it was a sort of rebirth for Jonah. It was a type of resurrection of what seemed like a certain death. Jonah is meant to build your confidence in God, to strengthen your faith in God because God is sovereign and God is in control even over the smallest details of your life. And God is kind. A lot of people look at the sovereignty of God and they think he's somehow malicious and cruel. And so they find and invent other theologies that say he's not sovereign. 
but that we are. Man, he is kind. Can't you see it? He should have killed Jonah, but he saved him. Jonah is meant to increase our affection for God because he saved us through Christ when we had no hope. How did God rescue you? Though Jonah is actual history, it was, it's a historical event, and though that is true, it also points us somewhere. It signifies how Jesus Christ saved believers from sin and spiritual death. In Matthew 12, verses 38 and 41, Jesus used Jonah to explain his resurrection. Listen to this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. <laughs> they always went after him to see something great. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, here it comes. Something greater than Jonah is here. There it is. Something greater than Jonah is here. God spared Jonah. He kept him alive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. That is sovereign mercy and grace and power. What a sign for the sovereign grace of God. But there is something better. God subjected his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to his wrath and crushed and killed him beneath the waves and billows of his justice. God put his son dead into the heart of the earth for three days. And then God literally raised Jesus up. And like the fish vomited Jonah upon the dry land as a type of new birth, Jesus rose and walked out of the tomb, a victor over death, securing new birth and eternal life for God's people. When hope was gone, Jesus emerged from the tomb alive again and victorious over death. Jonah is pointing you, my friends, to something much greater. Are you looking there? Jonah deserved to die, and God spared him. Jesus deserved to live, and God crushed him. And then God brought him up from the pit so that sinners like Jonah, sinners like me, sinners like you could live. Jonah pales in comparison with Jesus. Jesus is the hope of steadfast love mentioned in Jonah 2.8. In Jonah 2 verse 9, the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua is also the Hebrew name for Jesus. Jesus is salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign. And God is so kind to run after us. And aren't we glad that God catches those that he runs after? He doesn't miss any. One of the biggest truths that will give you the biggest joys and get you through the biggest problems is this. God is sovereign and he alone saves. Oh, God, you are so great. These things are too fantastic for us. 
And we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We look to the tomb that is empty. We look to the Christ who has raised again and who sits at your right hand in power and authority and sovereignty, God. We think about how good you are to raise us up. God, our hearts are so hard sometimes. Where would we be without your sovereign grace affecting us and changing our will. We would just will ourselves to hell. But God, you show up and you rescue and you restore and you redeem and you rebuild. God, I pray that we can see your sovereignty as a glorious thing. That we can see in your sovereignty your incredible kindness and grace, and love, and mercy, and gentleness. You are chasing after us. Thank you, God, that we can know you through your son, Jesus, that you crushed for us, and then you raised him up after three days. What a fantastic truth this is, and I pray that we can respond in incredible worship of gratitude. Jonah was grateful from the belly of the fish, all slimy and gross. Oh, he was thankful. Help us to be thankful, God. In Jesus' name, amen.